Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. So excited to hear, have my dear friend Emily Hayward here today to talk about branding in general and also her new book, Obsessed, which I am also obsessed with. So welcome, Em. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see your face. It's so nice <laughs> to see you too. I know this whole Corona thing. I'm like, we should grab a drink. Just kidding. We can't. Oh, I know. <laughs> I wish. I can't wait. We'll appreciate it so much more when we can. <laughs> I know. I know. I want to talk all about you. You have been doing astonishing things. So let's start at the beginning. For folks on the call who don't know you, which you better know, you started your career in traditional advertising, and then you went on to found your own company, Red Antler, which has been called the cult millennial brand whisperer. So tell me a little bit about your coming up in traditional advertising and what you saw that was missing. Absolutely. Well, I went through a journey that's probably relatable to people who have found a calling in the world of nonprofits, because I think... You know, I started my career at a corporation. My job was to come up with TV campaigns for big global brands. And I learned a ton and met amazing people, including your cousin, Ria, who's still a dear friend. But I started to reach a point in my career where I felt like I was being asked to solve the wrong problems because I had to come up with new things to say every year about old broken products that weren't actually that relevant to people and weren't really giving people what they need that would make their lives better. And I just felt like I wanted to go further upstream and really think about how could I apply the skills that I learned in advertising, but to actually propelling businesses that I wanted to see in the world. And this was right around the time when the New York startup scene was just getting going. 2007 is when we founded the company. And we were meeting all these amazing entrepreneurs that had these incredible visions for businesses that would really deliver true value, solve problems, transform categories, and they didn't know the first thing about brand building. So we created Red Antler to be a partner to entrepreneurs and really help entrepreneurs think about how do I bake brand into my business from the beginning? How do I start thinking about my brand before I even launch and really think about brand as a driver of business growth? And tell us a few of the companies that you've been involved with, which should be, you know, names that we are all familiar with. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of our probably more successful brands would be Casper, the mattress company. We launched Allbirds, the footwear company that's really rooted in a mission around sustainability and using more renewable natural materials across a wide range of categories. We worked with Betterment, the finance and investing to platform. Boxed, which right now should be on everyone's mind because they deliver bulk goods to your house. So they've got toilet paper back in stock. Hot tip. What about <laughs> Lysol? Many, I'm trying to get that Lysol train going. Yes. Many, many more across an incredibly wide range of categories. Everything from consumer goods to fashion to finance, healthcare, you name it. Love it. Love it. So you just published your first book, Obsessed, which I, again, am obsessed with. A couple quick highlights here. So in the book, your message is that brands need to put a human emotion and create community to be successful. And I'm just wondering, in nonprofits, which are inherently community-oriented, inherently sort of emotional, why are nonprofits so bad at branding in general? I've had the benefit of working with some nonprofits through the years, and it's always an incredibly gratifying experience, but it's also definitely given me a view into what can make it so difficult. 
And I think that it comes from a difficulty in driving focus, if I had to sum it up to one thing. You know, I think that the brands that are really successful, it's not that the products or the experiences don't like do a lot of things, right? Businesses are complicated, there's lots of features, there's lots of products, but the message is focused and singular. And it gives you kind of one thing to wrap your head around and care about. And I think what can happen in a nonprofit organization, and interestingly, I also see this very frequently with B2B companies as well, is you get too caught up in the weeds of all the different services you offer, all the ways you're helping, all the stakeholders who have a voice, like, and it just becomes messy instead of one clear, like resonating idea. I mean, one thing that I thought about when reading your book is how to apply your ideas to the nonprofit sector. And one of the difficulties I think is in the nonprofit world, our donors are the people that we think about as the revenue drivers, but our customers are often the people that we're serving. And so when those are different things, how do you apply your concepts to that? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a very common dynamic, like, how do you refer to the non-nonprofit as just like the commercial sector? Like what's the for-profit? The for-profit, for-profit sector, sector, right. Which is that you have a target audience that's distinct from your end user, right? Or you have two different audiences. Think about a two-sided marketplace like Airbnb, where you need to be getting people who want to rent their space and you also need to be get people who want to rent the space, right? Or there are businesses that are sort of selling through a doctor, but ultimately it's a product that serves the patient. So mm-hmm. this happens a lot. And I think what, first of all, what you have to remember is that again, if you have that clarity around your mission, that should be equally applicable to both audiences, right? Like the reason the donor is going to donate is because they care about solving whatever problem it is you're solving for your end user. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think you also need to make sure that you're drawing a through line and that you're not trying to sort of like constantly be balancing communications to both audiences. But then instead, again, you can really focus on like, why does this organization exist in the first place? And that's what's going to be getting the donors excited versus feeling like you need to target a message to them and then also separately be speaking about the good work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. One thing that you and I had spoken about in your previous podcast is that often founders or executive directors are cursed with knowing too much. And I I see this in my business too, which when I talk to leaders, they're so in the weeds that they're like, important, this is important. And and they don't really have enough distance from the problem to crystallize a simple message. How do you help people with that? Yeah. I mean, I feel that in my own business, right? I do this for a living. And when we go to write, let's say a website copy for Red Antler, I, my head starts spinning because I think about, and I'm sure this is true of the nonprofit space too. I think about every single time someone's hired us. Like if we don't talk about that one thing we do that that one person hired for us that one time, we'll never get hired for that again. And like, you have to cover all the different angles of what makes you special And I think that our role in working with founders is to be that outside voice that can edit. Like it's hard to edit yourself. You know too much, as you just said. So what we really try to focus founders on is like, look, you've got all these features, you've got all these products or goals, whatever it is, that's fine. It's not that you never get to talk about those things, but what do they ladder up to? Like, what is the unifying kind of umbrella idea that encapsulates sort of all these different parts of your business? And how do we focus on that? And ultimately what that becomes 
is really an exercise in continually grounding yourself in how do you want to make people feel? Like not, or what are the 100 things we need to communicate and get them to understand, but how do we want them to feel? And if you can achieve that, then they'll spend time with you getting to know like the rest of your business, right? But if you start with an onslaught of information, you're going to lose them. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about Danny Meyer, the famed restaurateur here in New York, has a saying where he said, imagine everyone is walking around with an imaginary sign around their neck saying, make me feel special. Oh, he's brilliant. So brilliant. I know. <laughs> I was like, that's why he's making a bajillion dollars. Yeah. Um, and that's why we love going to his places, right? You feel special. You have a feeling. There's an emotional experience when you interface with any of Danny Meyer's restaurants. It's so true. And I think that what he's highlighting there and what I constantly try to remind my clients of is that ultimately like every business is in the service business. Every business is there to create a feeling, an experience, an outcome for their audience, their customers, their clients. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually in a service business. So I feel that every day. But even if you're selling like a physical product or trying to get people to donate money, you've got to tap into what they need and mm -hmm. how it applies to them personally. Like we're all ultimately sort of selfishly motivated, even the right. most kind of giving benevolent people in the world. It's complicated, right? And I think that you need to constantly be grounding what you're doing in what you're solving for people. Mm -hmm. The last point that you made, M, though, is really an interesting one because in traditional fundraising, we talk about segmenting lists, right? And so we'll often look at like different demographics around like, well, this is the 44-year-old you know, woman living in New York and this is the like mom living in wherever. And in your book, you talk about groups of people around needs and preferences. So are you talking more about psychographics versus demographics? Definitely. And look, I think demographics can be really helpful when you're actually doing marketing, right? So it, that could also be a fundraising list, right? The equivalent of marketing, you know, if you literally need to find people and reach them, like once you're in the business of sort of buying ads on Facebook or sending out emails, you know, there it is helpful to sort of have demographic guidelines, right? So you can find people. But when we're talking about building the foundation of a brand, we are very rarely talking about demographics because a brand can stand for something bigger than that. And like, it can actually reach people across a very wide range of age groups, geographies, even behaviors, if ultimately what you're doing is tapping into a need state and a mindset and a set of beliefs. Like really, it should be about people's values. Mm. And I don't think that values are defined by how old you are and how much money you make necessarily. Like there can be loose parameters there, but at the end of the day, like it cuts across all of those demographic segments. Right. So it's like, if you are the kind of person who believes X, then you are our kind of people. Exactly. And what's your relationship to the category? Again, with for-profit, we're sort of always thinking about, okay, how do people in the, that we're talking to currently feel about fashion or whatever their finances, whatever it else it might be, and really try to figure out what's missing from their lives and how the brand that we're building can be an answer to that. And so how do you find that out? Is it focus groups? Is it individual interviews? Like how would I, one go about that? Yeah. So first I tend to value qualitative research over quantitative research. I think people love having numbers, right? It makes them feel more comfortable, but 
but I think you learn a lot more generally from talking to people than you do from doing like a nationwide survey. It's like 54% of people believe that X. It's like, okay, but like, do they really? Or did they just check that box because it makes them look good to themselves? So I love talking to people and I prefer doing it in the form of one-on-one -on -one interviews. I think people are drawn to focus groups because you get more bang for your buck, right? Like you can talk to more people at once. But I think you so often see group dynamics playing out, people influencing each other. It's really hard to go deep and like get into the why behind the why, really sort of figure out, okay, they're saying they feel this way, but like what's really driving that? And how do I sort of dig into that and figure out their actual motivations? Hard to do that when there's a bunch of other people sitting around. Yeah, something that I wondered about because on the one hand, there is a ton of value in talking to people and getting that real-time feedback. And on the other hand, you're working with brands that are essentially like disruptive and rule-breaking. And so I guess I'm wondering what the tension is between like giving people what they say they want and actually giving them something they didn't even know they wanted. I love that question. And what we're never using research for is to test out our ideas. It always is the first step. It's like, let's talk to people and understand like what's going on in their lives. What are they struggling with? Sort of gaps and barriers and stigmas and whatever else might be there. But then it's on us and really the founder to sort of figure out, okay, how are we gonna be the answer to that? Because people are not gonna tell you the answer. There's a quote, and I talk about this in my book, and like people attribute this to Henry Ford. I don't think he actually said it, but it's helpful. Is like if you ask people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? And so to me, I'm like, I don't even wanna ask people what they want. I wanna ask them, what are the problems they're facing? Like, are they struggling with like getting from point A to point B? And like, why does that matter to them? And like, let's dig into that without trying to get them to sort of spit out some innovation idea that we can't expect people to even care about until it exists. Yeah. So one thing you talk about, which I love is obviously the brands that you work on have a very specific kind of personality. They have a, a strong brand voice. And I think in the nonprofit sector, we tend to really play it safe because we want to be inclusive and we're like freaked out about alienating potential donors. Tell me what you think the, the risk of being too safe and too distinctive enough would be. Yeah. I mean, look, it's scary to leave behind potential audiences, especially, you know, when you're in the position of like, you're asking for money and like the instinct would be like, let's just get as many people to give us money as we possibly can. But I think what you have to realize is it takes so much to break through and get someone's attention, let alone getting them to care. And if you're not out there with a message that sort of sparks something in them, you know, they might read a statement and be like, I agree with that and then not do anything, right? So I think you've got to provoke, you've got to wake people up. And this is true in for-profit and nonprofit. Like people are busy, they're living their lives, they've got a ton going on. There's a million things competing for their attention every single second. And if you water down your message because of fear of turning people off, you're not gonna turn anyone on. <laughs> Yeah, I keep talking about this, that good marketing attracts and great marketing repels, right? And I want to create a brand where people are like, oh, that is so me, or like, oh, that's not at all me. But that it's The other clear. thing I've seen happen in the nonprofit world, which I do think is somewhat unique to the nonprofit world, is there are a lot of internal stakeholders too, usually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not a lot of hierarchy on like who's ultimately in charge. 
And I think that can lead to watered down messaging and work just as much as sort of worrying about all the different audiences. Like I think the problem almost starts from within because you've got a board and you've got like a bunch of different teams. And again, there's like a spirit of inclusivity and like we're all good people and we want to hear from everyone and everyone deserves a voice. And like, those are all wonderful intentions, but they don't actually lead to a great brand. Oh, that is so true. You know, it's so funny. I'm, I'm like the authoritarian nonprofit person. I'm like, no, I'm in charge. This is how it's going to be. I mean, it has to be. Yeah. It, it just does. Like, and look, everybody's there because they have their own particular skill set and they can be in charge of like their purview, but every decision does not need to be made by a committee. Oh my God. I know. I've tried to draft things like letters by committee and I literally just want to shoot myself in the face. It is a terrible experience. It's not only a terrible experience, the work gets worse. Yeah, 100%. You talk a lot about how a lot of these new brands are engaging in conscious capitalism and social good. And I think, you know, what I've noticed among younger consumers, millennials and Gen Z is that they're, I mean, look at Black Lives Matter, like they are very engaged in social movements. So I'm guessing I'm wondering how can nonprofits capitalize on both being a business, but also capitalize on people wanting to do good. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a moment in time when people feel like very motivated and also somewhat powerless. You know, it feels almost like you want to do everything and like there's sort of nothing you can do, right? Like we're mm -hmm. not trusting our institutions. We're examining like the makeup of the companies that we love and finding it falling incredibly short in terms mm -hmm. of who's actually in positions of power. So I think this is an amazing moment for nonprofits to step in with like a real message of kind of focus and not, I hate to use the word like purity of intent because I think there's always complication, but I do think that a lot of the companies that I work with are rooted in a mission and have incredible intentions of like what they're, the impact that they have on the world, but it's still a commercial enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a nonprofit, it can be less complicated. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't that added thing of like, oh, we've got to like, you know, raise our next round and bring labor costs down and like, where's the stuff getting made, right? It's just all about the mission. So mm -hmm. I would say that's something to really double down on. Yeah. That's so, such an interesting point because it, it is, I mean, the reason why nonprofits exist is that there's some gap in the marketplace that the government isn't taking care of. And so we exist to fill that need. And so we can be unapologetic and standing in that gap and talking about what we do and how we connect people to the services that they need or animals or whatever it is we do. Yeah. Look, I am all for conscious capitalism. I work on a lot of businesses that would put themselves in that category and that are in that category but it's still capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like there are also problems capitalism is not going to solve because capitalism sometimes is a big part of the problem. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other podcast. Girlfriend. Yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> we can talk about that one. Let's talk about, you know, one thing that came out loud and clear in your book was the value of focus and simplicity. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit. So in the examples that you used, a lot of the companies you started, started with one product and really like became the best in the world at this one thing. And in the nonprofit sector, I'm wondering if you could speak to how that might play out to you. Like, you know, you and I have talked about Charity Water. They are you know, the best known in the world for clean water and creating wells. 
Teach for America, best in the world at you know, putting young people in the classrooms. So do you think that there's value in divesting services when it comes to nonprofits or simplifying the message? I think for sure simplifying the message. Look, I think it's all about hierarchy, right? And I think that many nonprofits have a very wide range of services and there may be good reason to continue that wide range, but it doesn't mean you have to talk about all of them at the same level. Like just because you're doing it doesn't mean it needs to be incorporated on the top of the homepage. And to me, that's where it's like, you can keep doing it. Like you don't have to stop. You don't have to like shut the whole thing down. But what do you want to be known for? Because it's really hard to be known for one thing, let alone many things. Mm -hmm. So I think there it's about, again, where do we see the most potential what can represent our mission and our vision? And then we can like, there's time to weave in the rest of it, right? Like right. once you've formed a relationship with someone, you can tell them about all the other amazing programs that you have going on. But again, in terms of becoming like a household name, you've got to make it easy for people to wrap their head around what you do. Also mm -hmm. so they can talk about you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if you're having a hard time explaining yourself, how do you think word of mouth is going to happen? How are you going to get excited when like you can't even, you no, know, it takes you five minutes to explain your business. It's so funny. I've talked to so many executive directors and I ask them like, what do you do? And they're like, they always start with, well, it's complicated. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh God. I think that some people feel they've succeeded if they can get that description down to five minutes. To me, five minutes is like a massive failure. Yeah. 100%. Okay, last question before I open it up to the audience here. What are some actionable things that nonprofit leaders can do today uh, that won't cost a lot of money that will help them start to move towards simplicity of message? I think it's about establishing an internal hierarchy and getting everyone, including the board, on board with sort of how we're going to simplify the decision-making process internally because I really do think that's where the complication starts, especially because mm -hmm. like, you know, you've got one board member who's on there because they've got their own agenda and it's not the agenda that's like really tied to why this you know, organization exists, but you have to keep them happy. Like we've all seen that happen. Right. So I think it's about first setting up like a hierarchy within the organization, like who ultimately is the decision-maker here? Who's just going to be informed who gets to have a voice, but like ultimately is going to be overridden, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's about stripping out all the excess, you know, mm -hmm. and a good place to start is a website, right? Like I see again and again with both nonprofits and B2B businesses, business to business businesses, you know, you'll have, just so often have like a multi-layered navigation on the top of the website where there's like five different sections of the site and under each one, there's like six different, it's like, nobody's spending that much time on your website. Mm -hmm. Like nobody, like someone should be on their phone and be able to scan your homepage and understand what you do and why they should care. Mm. And that to me is the place to begin. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend doing an internal audit of communications and can someone else help you to do that? Because again, if you're the ED and you're like so in it, it's hard for you to see the forest for the trees. Yeah, I mean, I almost think you could start, it would be great to get outside help, but let's assume you can't even afford outside help. I think that you could go through an exercise of almost like writing your own brief, like a one pager that just sort of, if you were coming to this fresh, like get everything out of your head and it's like really try to write the story of like, 
why does this matter in the simplest possible terms? Like get it down to as few words as possible. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, who are we for? Why do we exist? You know, like let's get this as concise and clear as possible and then use that document to audit everything you're doing. And if there's anything that's sort of not ultimately like delivering on that clear, simple message, it's time to change. Okay, wait, can I talk about one of my favorite things in your book, which is fear of death. Talk talk (laughs) to me about how fear of death clarifies the message. Yes. So this is in the section of the book where I'm talking about making sure that you're tapping into like a real need of your audience, right? We, we spoke about this before, sort of making sure you're grounding what you're doing in something that's relevant for the people that you're trying to reach. And the way to do that is you say, okay, like, what is it that people care about? You know, let's go back to the horse example. You know, it takes too long to get from point A to point B. Okay, why do they care about that? Because they spend more time traveling than they do experiencing things. Okay, why do they care about that? You can't stop that exercise until you get to fear of death because my hypothesis is that what ultimately motivates all of our actions is our sense of our own mortality. I don't think in the nonprofit world you want to think about fear of death when it comes to the actual people that you're helping because that's like very sort of, it's meant to be a lighthearted exercise. But I do think in terms of donors... And really thinking about like what is going to motivate someone to give to this cause versus other causes and making sure it's not just about their belief in the cause, but it is tapping into sort of a belief about themselves. Mm -hmm. That is a way to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I, I say it a little bit differently, which is like, think about how you talk to their donors about what they want to leave behind. Like, what is their legacy? What do they want to be remembered for? Yeah, well, that ties directly into fear of death, right? It's like, did I do the right thing with my very short time on earth? Right. And like, everybody has, I mean, you guys all know this even better than I do, but like, everybody has the causes they care most about. Nobody cares equally about, there's so many worthwhile causes. No one cares equally about all of them. And there's a reason that some sort of spark something in a person versus a different one. It's not like one is more worthwhile than the other, but there are personal reasons that you're drawn to something versus something else. Mm-hmm. And it's about tapping into that and understanding that and like get, reaching people from a place of sort of shared values and empathy instead of just like, of course people are going to care about this. It's important Yeah, because it's all important. You know, it's funny you say that because I so often with nonprofits, like they actually haven't had conversations with their board members about why they care about the thing, right? And I think especially in nonprofits, we have this tendency to want, want to kill people with like all the metrics and then this and then that and like a, this onslaught of information. But really, it's like this human experience of like, I care deeply about this particular thing because of something in my past or because of like some value I have or because of an experience my kids had or whatever it may be. And like, unless we ask that question, unless we know that, we can't tap into it. I think that's where it all needs to start. Because again, if you're just trying to rationally show someone that your cause is worthwhile, like, of course it's worthwhile. Like people are suffering. The earth is suffering. Like there are, again, eight billion problems to be solved. So it really needs to be more personal than that. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to open it up for questions. I've got one question coming in from Mark Schwartz. Mark, I'm going to unmute you and you can ask your question. Hey, Mark. 
Hi guys, how are you? Thanks for joining. What's your question? It's related to marketing. It has to do with influencing the influencers. And I don't know if that's in your book about, you know, mattresses and shoes and the stuff you sell, but I was wondering how it applies to the nonprofit world and how we get our donors to influence their friends. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's about giving them the tools to easily do so. I think that the nice thing about the time we're living in is that everyone has a platform. It used to be like, you know, want to engage people to sort of talk about you, like, how are they going to do that? Are they going to forward an email, you know, are they going to like call all their friends up? But I think that back to Ria's point earlier about sort of this moment of activism and people wanting to be engaged, people are excited to show off on Instagram that they're like doing good things. And I think that's a good thing. Like we could say it's performative, but like if they're really doing it, I think it actually has an opportunity to like spread the word and get more people excited and involved. But I think you've got to make it easy for them. And to me, that comes from creating assets, like really great looking, easy to post, get people, like give them everything they need to just make it as turnkey as possible instead of expecting that they're going to figure it out on their own. And really there, it's just about like reducing the work. Mm. I think the motivation is actually already there. So it becomes about tactics. Yeah, that's a good point. I talk a lot about making it easy to do business with. And so if we put up unnecessary barriers, like if we make it hard for board members to find like that email that they need to forward, they're way more, way less likely to do it. So like, how can we make it easy to do business? And I think this actually speaks to your point, Emily, about how you create community. Because as we know, the most powerful motivator for people to donate is if other people that they know, like, and trust are also donating. And so could you talk a little bit about the mechanisms and tactics around creating community around a beloved brand? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times people have a very narrow, literal definition of community, especially because of social media. And they think the only metric that matters is how many followers you have on Instagram and like how engaged are they and how often are they commenting. And like that can be a valuable tool, but that's not going to work for every brand. It's not even necessary for every brand. Instead, I think it really is about tapping into people's values and sort of becoming part of their identity. I do think we're living in a time where the causes that you care about are part of your identity. Like we know which friends on Instagram are like incredibly engaged in racial justice. We know which ones are incredibly engaged in the environment, right? Because they're proud of it. So that to me is such a more powerful metric of community than like them coming to you to like interact with your content, right? I think it's really about sort of how they take that and infuse it into their own identity. And then they're out there in the world and creating more connections around this shared ethos. So it's about creating fans. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Welcome, James. Hey, James. Hey, Ray. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for this great talk. So I'm a brand strategist that works mostly with nonprofits and sometimes early stage for-profit companies um, that often have very limited budgets. And what I find is oftentimes nonprofits We'll be able to get a grant and raise money to do a big, you know, significant rebrand and a significant redesign of their website and their marketing collateral. But then afterwards, they can't really execute on bringing that brand to life through a sustained brand marketing or creative campaigns, etc. So I'm curious what recommendations you might have for these types of organizations that only have a, a small annual marketing or communications budget of, say, like 20, 30 
$40,000 a year and a full-time staff of just a couple of people. Yeah, I mean, of course, like that's the biggest challenge, right, of the nonprofit world is like there's never enough resources to, to achieve everything you want to achieve. So the first thing I'd say is when that grant comes in, I think my guess is there would be a way to run that like first foundational push in a way that's much simpler, more streamlined, and doesn't require as many resources because you're right. It's like that one upfront push is only going to take you so far if it then starts to unravel in the second and third month, right? Like you've got to keep it going and it ran as a living, breathing thing. So I think every nonprofit could probably stand to like simplify their website, simplify the process and like the number of stakeholders that's involved in a process like that and allocate more budget for ongoing activity right? Versus thinking we're going to invest $100,000 in our website redesign, and then we literally have no money for the rest of the year to actually get the word out. I think that figuring out who on the team is best suited to sort of own the voice is critical. Isn't on the, someone on the team that can do that? That feels like an important hire to me. And maybe again, there's another hire that like their time could be split among the sort of ways to like reimagine sort of how the staff takes shape because at the end of the day it's important and I think it gets deprioritized and sort of seen as like not the job of a nonprofit to focus on but without that it's going to be really really hard to like grow and have the impact that you want to have. I think going back to Mark's question what are all the activities you can do to mobilize your fans that's another way to kind of like maximize a small budget and sort of get people out there doing the work for you. But at the end of the day, like people respond to great design. They respond to well-crafted, crisp communication. And I think that the belief that you can kind of like fake your way along or have someone who's not a designer sort of running your social channels and it just looks kind of like janky, like it's not going to work. So to me, the question is like, what's the minimum we need to do this well, to do this right? Where are we spending money on marketing activities that aren't actually moving the needle as much as they could? Could our website be two simple pages? And then we spend more of our time on Facebook and Instagram, getting people talking about the things we care about. Great. One other question that occurred to me is, what is the role of founders or leaders in being the face of the brand. So one of the things that you talk about in your book are kind of like famous and infamous founders, you know, the Travis Kalanix of the world, the, the Adam Newman, the, you know, whatever that may be. So many EVs that I know are very uncomfortable with the spotlight. So can you talk a little bit about what sort of expectation would there be for a leader to represent the brand publicly? It's one of those things where like, do you have to? No. But is it a huge missed opportunity if you don't? Yes. I think that there is no substitute for having a human voice that is conveying the message of an organization. It just gives people something to latch onto, someone to relate to. Like, it just makes the whole thing feel so much more tangible and genuine and meaningful than if Every time people are hearing from your company, it's just like an anonymous, faceless voice of the company. And I think in the for-profit world, it can be incredibly compelling to see a founder that was like on a personal mission to start this company and why they did it and they embody the spirit of it and like they're out there talking and getting people excited and rooting for them. 
I would imagine that's even more powerful in the nonprofit world, just because people want to like believe in something. And it's hard to do that if you're not being inspired by the person who believes in it the most. Ah, that's such a good point. And, and actually, could you speak a little bit about the power of an origin story? Because I think some of the most iconic brands we know, it's like Steve Jobs started his company in a garage. Like there's always a garage involved, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg and his dorm room at Harvard, like the Airbnb guys and like their San Francisco apartment, right? So there's something like very compelling about the seduction of story. Definitely. And look, again, I think in the for-profit world, those examples that you listed give people a little bit of a sense of like, I could do this too, right? Like it's just, it's like a rags to riches, you know, everybody loves. But I also think an origin story can be an incredibly powerful way to tap into the why, right? Like if what we're ultimately saying is that people want to understand like, why does this business exist? Like ultimately, what problem is it solving? It's such an amazing tool for the person who started it all to be like, I saw this problem out there in the world. This was my experience. And like, here's why I had no choice but to do something. And to me, like, that's so much more motivating and compelling than again, just like a generic mission statement. So how do we balance, Emily, this idea of being human and being the face of with the fear of making mistakes? Because I think when you're a human being, you open yourselves up for like saying the wrong thing. And particularly I think now in, on social media, like you can be eviscerated for like one bad tweet. So yes, you can. I mean, I, think that this could be a whole other podcast too, right? Like the pros and cons of cancel culture. I think most of the tweets that really eviscerate someone are really bad. Like it's typically not like you made a well-intentioned stumble. It's like, you're kind of an asshole and you're finally (laughs) being called out for it. And my guess is this is not the first time you said something horrific. So I think you sort of need to, like I have that fear all the time. And then I'm like, but I don't, believe terrible things <laughs> like you know <laughs> and i think that you've got to have faith that if you are listening and sort of aware of other people's perspectives and engaged in the public dialogue about right and wrong that you're not going to make like a grave mistake there's no coming back from now that doesn't mean you won't stumble but i think there are ways to stumble and recover if the stumble itself came from a well-intentioned place And if you approach it with humility, deference, and action, if you own up to it, you don't get defensive, and you're like, you're right, and I've learned, and here's what I'm doing next, I don't think the world is as unforgiving as they're being painted as right now. Well, (laughs) there's some atrocious behavior out there. There's horrible behavior (laughs) on the internet, for sure. But I guess the question is, are the people who are being called out worse than the people who are doing the calling out. It's very complicated, but I can't imagine that any of your nonprofit founders are at risk of this. Well, you'd be surprised. Well, that's that's another podcast. Maybe a place to start then is by educating yourself. I feel like if you are someone who's like really at risk of offending large numbers of people, maybe the place to start is like, why is that? (laughs) True that. Okay, we have a question coming in from Tom. Tom, what's your question? Thank you, Rhea, for putting this together. I first met you when you were running your nonprofit out of the town school. Uh, yes, very that's right. Long time ago. I was a little baby ED. <laughs> 
I'm wondering on about the intersection between a marketing campaign and a PR campaign. And what I've found in the past is that it is relatively easier, if not simple, to get picked up in rag trades and get picked up in local newsletters and newspapers, but to get really well-placed national coverage, television coverage, or other really effective PR that can buoy the organization is very challenging. And I wonder if either of you or both of you have some insights onto how to do that more effectively. Yes, it's really hard. So I don't personally do PR, like our company doesn't do PR, um, but all of our clients also hire a PR firm in conjunction with the work that we're doing. So I think that like branding can help influence the success of PR in that, again, everything we've been talking about for this hour around sort of crispness, clarity, like cohesive message. Journalists are people too, right? And if they get a pitch that they're sort of having to like weed through to understand what the point is, that's gonna be much less compelling than something that's singular, focused, powerful, etc. But it's just true that to get that kind of national press, it can't just be a story about the fact that you exist. There has to be a timely angle. And that's not always going to be the case, right? Like journalists are not going to just write about an interesting nonprofit that they learned about. It has to be that it's somehow tapping into a cultural movement, a trend, current events. Like you're much, much more likely to be part of like a roundup piece than you are to have a profile about you. So I think it's about figuring out like what role do we play in a larger conversation that's happening right now versus how do we just get someone to write about us? Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And that is such a good point because I do think a lot of nonprofits spend a lot of time talking about themselves and not enough time thinking about the needs of their donors or how they're adding to the conversation in the broader context. Yeah, I mean, there are journalists, most journalists have topics that they cover ongoing that interest them. And most appreciate their lives being made easier. So if there's a journalist who's like always writing about kind of certain ideas, certain movements, pitching them a story that again, play a role in, but it's like, hey, here's how we're working on this. And here's a topic already of interest to you because, and I know this from your body of work, they're going to appreciate that versus just like another generic thing coming through there. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, we have time for one last question coming in from Alegria. Ale? Hello. Hi, Ria and Emily. So my question was, how can your brand stand out from the crowd, especially now that there's so many brands doing the same thing? Like, is there any actionable steps that you can take to actually make your brand stand out from the crowd? Yeah, I mean, I think it's first has to start with a very clear strategy about what makes you different. There's a lot of people who sort of sound the same. And I think it needs to start with figuring out like what makes us unique? Why are we unlike anyone else? And really focusing on that. And then this goes back to the conversation we were having before about nonprofit budgets and sort of where you're investing money and time, but like without great design and communications, it's going to be really hard. Like it would be amazing if sort of the content of the story alone was enough to get people's attention, but I just don't think we're living in that world anymore. I think there's a lot of noise. And I think that it takes a specific skill set to craft communications 
that break through. And I think that involves bringing in someone with that expertise versus thinking that like there are six magic words that if we can just find those words and get them out there, people are going to pay attention because we're all so bombarded. And I think the bar has also been raised among every sort of individual on great design. We're seeing a startup explosion. Everyone's investing more in like how they look. It's like Instagram culture, right? Everyone like looks professional on there. And I think that you've got to sort of play that game if ultimately you're gonna reach people and build a relationship. Million dollar question, how do we make people fall in love with us? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is actually a time of like great, change. I think people are more engaged than ever before, but also feeling more powerless than ever before. Big thesis, like sort of start of my book is this shift in consumer culture that has happened because people have so much information, so much choice, and ultimately power when it comes to like who they're choosing to align themselves with, which can feel like pressure, but it's also a big opportunity. Because I think if you can sort of tap into that, that core need that someone has, there's such an opportunity to build a deeper, more meaningful, more lasting relationship. I think in terms of getting people to fall in love, you've got to find your people. You're not going to get everyone to fall in love. So you need to think about like, who are going to be our champions? Who are going to be the people that align themselves with this mission to the point where it becomes part of their identity? How do we get them first and then mobilize them from there and get them to like bring in more of their community? Because especially I think when it comes to causes, there's no substitute for like learning about it from some, you said this before, Ria, like there's the effective community and sort of most people ultimately become engaged with something because they learned about it from somebody else other than the people that are like hardcore activists. Right. So what I'm hearing from you, which is a strategy of going deep, not broad. Yes, 100%. And that starts internally. Mm-hmm. And then it's about making hard choices, not trying to cover every potential angle, yeah. but really sort of forcing those difficult choices and owning a point of view. I got to say, as you were talking, I'm thinking about the fact that I just watched Hamilton again. It's like, if you stand for nothing, then you'll fall for everything. Yes, yes, right. Yes, exactly. Like Aaron Burr. Don't be Aaron Burr, you guys. You do not want to be Aaron Burr. (laughs) Yeah, and there are so many tools now for finding communities that care about something, that are engaged about something, that are talking about something, and like, if you don't have that message in place first, it's just going to all be a waste of effort and a waste of time. Okay, wait, actually, I lied. I do have one last question. So can you talk a little bit about bridging the gap between like fans on social media, right? Like we can be Instagram famous, TikTok famous, whatever, and not necessarily have that translate to donations. And I think that that is something that nonprofit field has really been struggling with, particularly around like vanity metrics. Like, okay, so whatever, I have like a thousand fans on Instagram, but if no one's donating, like what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't dismiss the thousand fans on Instagram. Like, I think that that can be powerful in itself because those are people that care enough about you to be following you and might talk about you to someone else. But again, I think it goes back to what we were saying before about making it easy for people. 
And to me, that doesn't mean like send out more emails asking people to donate. I think that you want to make something feel timely. I think you want to give them tools to brag. I think you want to sort of create almost like mini campaigns where it's like, we're not just asking you for $5, but it's like, here's why right now, here's what it's going to do. And then here's how you can talk about it and get credit for this amazing thing that you did. Make me feel special. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Full circle. All right. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a super busy lady. Really appreciate so it. Uh, I will thank make you sure everyone. Yeah. I'm going to make sure to put all of your information in the podcast notes. It's going to air on the podcast in two weeks and I will make sure to link to your book. If you haven't already bought Obsessed, buy it. Run, don't walk. It's good stuff. You can get thank it you. on the Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ria. I'll see you soon. All right. Bye. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye, everyone.